Welcome to another episode of the Founder Fundamentals Podcast. My name is Rahul Kumar, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Sean Lowe, co-founder and senior advisor at Better. Thanks for joining us, Sean. Thanks for having me, Rahul. From the time that you co-founded Better, not only has the company experienced dramatic transformation and growth, but it's also become one of the most prolific companies in real estate technology today. That being said, it's actually quite common for the average person not to have heard of Better. Why is that? Well, first off, I would like to think that increasingly more and more people are hearing about us. Like anecdotally, just you know, within my own immediate circle, my neighbor got a couple of better mortgages, so did my accountant, and I've had more than a few friends kind of reach out to ask. That being said, I'm also mindful that Better has a lot of headroom to grow. Right? We've grown incredibly quickly, but it's really still, you know, one to two percent of the mortgage market. And that's just the mortgage market, right? And Better, I think, has aspirations of being a full home ownership company, and it's way bigger than just mortgages. So for me, I think of that as we're growing really quickly, but it's actually good that many people haven't heard of us because it means that there's a lot more people that we can reach. So how do you describe Better.com then? What is Better.com? To me, Better is a home ownership company. And what does a home ownership company mean? I think a home ownership is something that many people aspire to but the experience of becoming and staying a homeowner is often, you know, frankly, today, very fragmented and very difficult. I mean, if you think of the process of buying a house, right, you're dealing with the real estate agent, you're dealing with title insurance, you have lawyers involved, you need to find the money, right? Then you need people who understand the property to do your inspections. And then after you do that, you become a homeowner, right? You still have to worry about the financing because you're thinking of refinancing. Eventually, if you want to sell, you worry about insurance, you worry about servicing your loan. Right, you're worried about designing the place, all of that stuff. Right today, what's weird is that the homeowner is the person that has to coordinate all of that thing, and I think people really just need a partner to help them navigate this process. Right, and I think that's what Better is trying to be. So, for those that may not know, there are other players in the quote-unquote digital space like Rocket and Blend, but what is fundamentally different about Better? I think I would point to two things. One is that. I think at Better, we don't believe that software alone is going to solve most of the fundamental challenges within the mortgage industry today, right? Things like the commission structure, the lack of integration between many different parts of the process, right? That I don't think it's just going to be solved by, by software alone because that involves people, you know, there's something to be said around legacy structures. And because we started out from that point, right, I don't think Better has ever aspired to just be a software company in the way that some of these other companies are. Second, I think we believe in not just building a nice storefront for people, right? Today, when people think of digital businesses, sometimes when somebody tells me, oh, you know, I I heard about this digital business and then I go there and I realize that it's really just a nice storefront, but fundamentally the nuts and bolts underlying is exactly the same as a brick and mortar shop. And I think at Better, we're not just thinking about the nice digital storefront for people. We are also thinking about using technology to fundamentally automate, integrate from the ground up. Behind every loan is like, you know, nearly 100 man hours worth of underwriting, data collection, coordination, emails, right? Same thing on the real estate transaction. Behind every real estate transaction, you know, you have real estate agents trying to coordinate between the buyers and the sellers to do a viewing, right? And these are things that really can be solved with technology. And at Better, I think, you know, one of the things that we've always said is, you know, you let humans do what humans do best, let machines do what machines do best. Right. Humans are great at empathizing with other humans. They're really great at you know, providing that human connection that people need, especially when they go through such a such an important transaction in their lives. 
but everything else really will be great for machines to do. So I think those two things kind of set us apart. You had mentioned the challenges of the mortgage business, the challenges with the product itself. What would you describe those challenges as? Because from the inception of the product, the product fundamentally hasn't really changed much. What would you describe as those top three challenges? To me, the product is not just about, as I said, it's not just about the software, right? So let me use a very concrete example, something like loan officer commissions. One of the things that frankly, I think contributed to some of the accesses that you saw, right, in the financial crisis was when you had agents, you know, or loan officers that were incentivized to sell people more loan, right? Because, you know, I take a cut of the loan, the bigger the loan, the more money I make. And we said, hey, that's not really the way it should work. The way it should work is if you start off from first principles, you should first, you know, have somebody who is not commission incentivized, right? Work with you to figure out how much you can afford. And that can be done by a human, but that can also easily be done, you know, supported by a machine. Right. And that was one example of something where we looked at something in the industry that didn't really work, decided, hey, you know what, we can create a better system for this. Right. And ultimately a better product. And the way to create a better product is you hire some non-commissioned loan officers, you train them from scratch, you build technology that supports their workflow so that it's a lot easier for them to price a loan. It's a lot easier for them to you know, allow the consumer to self-serve. And that to me is the product. The product is not just people going on better.com, right? And seeing our nice storefront. The product actually is the whole experience and it requires a re-architecting, rethinking of the value chain. Before I dig more into better and your experience with better, I do want to know more about you as an individual. You're Singaporean by background. How did you find your way to the US and eventually co-found what has now become over a $4 billion company? And congratulations on that, by the way. Oh, thanks. So I went to college in the US and, you know, Post that, started my career with BCG, uh, which is a consulting firm in Singapore. I came back to the US because my then girlfriend and now wife ended up doing a master's in theater. And, you know, no better place to do theater than New York. And, you know, in the earlier days, I think a former BCG alum, right, had made an introduction to Vishal. And Vishal, is, was a founder and CEO, has always been kind of the core, at least the center and the spiritual soul of the company. He gave it vision, he gave it purpose, and he invited me and a couple of other folks to join him on this journey. What was that pitch when uh, Vishal invited you on the journey? How did he sell you on the company? Was this just at a coffee shop? What's the story behind that? <laughs> well, I thought about this quite a bit. At that point in my time, I was leaving what was sort of a decently well-paying job, especially as somebody who was foreign, right? Like, so I was on an employment visa. It's a significant risk to go join like sort of a really early stage company where if you lose your job, you kind of have a certain number of days before you, you get kicked out of the country. And... I think a couple of things really resonated with me about the company. One was, I think right from the start, the team was solid. Vishal had taken the company public before. I had started My Rich Uncle, you know, one of the, the largest student lenders in the early 2000s, right? Eric B was at Spotify. You had Eric Wilson, who had done, you know, amazing stuff in the mortgage industry and really understood the loan products that we were selling. And I think that in itself was like half the better one. The other thing was, this was such a big space. We never worried about running out of, you know, addressable market, right? We never worried about TAM because there was just so much to do. Even from the beginning, it was not just about mortgages. We always knew that we would go into real estate. We always knew we wanted to kind of, you know, in the early, very early prototypes of Better back in 2015, right? I remember there was this map where you would click on the map and it wouldn't just show you the houses. It would show you, you know, how much you have to pay every month. 
right? Which is something only a lender can tell you. So it was even at the early stage, there was already this integration between what would traditionally be thought of as the mortgage lender's role versus the real estate agent's role. And then the last thing was, uh, I think I was just frankly excited about, I mean, everybody talks about, you know, I'm, I'm here to disrupt a really broken industry. So, but let me make that a little bit more concrete, right? So when I first started, you know, sort of digging around in the mortgage space, when Vishal was telling me about his idea, I was looking into some, you know, I, I can't remember if it was a closing vendor, or one, of, one of the vendors that was sort of a industry standard, like a lot of people were using them. And then you read at the bottom of the screen, right? And it says, you know, this site was optimized for Natscape Navigator, right? 6.0 or something like that. And, I, and this, I, this was back in like 2015. And I was like, wow, this is a massive industry, right? There's 60 to 70% of Americans who are homeowners, right? But you have this industry that's powered by people who clearly still either live in like, you know, the dot-com boom from the first era, or in some cases, every now and then you will still get vendors who will say, you know, can you please fax this over to me, right? And I said, you have a great solid team. The TAM is massive. An existing incumbent, the people in the space, I think haven't really rethought their business model in a really long time. So this felt like a very, very compelling proposition. So obviously the TAM is not the issue in this. There's about 300 million people in the US. Most of them live in homes. It's a giant TAM without a question. But if we dig back to 2015, you've been at BCG for a few years and you have the option, as you mentioned, to keep climbing the ladder at a very prestigious consulting firm. So you decide to bet your career on a company that's going after a product surrounded knee deep by regulation in an industry with relatively low margins. You have an existing digital, quote unquote, competitor in the form of Quicken, even though if we want to get into that, the nuts and bolts may not have fundamentally changed. But then the first argument against this business very well may have been, well, the banks definitely have the cash to do it. Why can't they just hire engineers and pull this off? So to your point, you just mentioned a lot of the players didn't really rethink of the business model at that point in time. Why do you think that is? And I guess you do need to be somewhat audacious when starting a company, regardless of whatever that is. But what really clicked in your head that allowed you to think that, you know what, we can actually pull this off, like us team of four or five, whatever it was at that point in time, that we're going to go against banks that have been in this business for 50 plus years that have a balance sheet to hire on God's green earth, whoever they wanted. What really allowed you to think that you could do this? So... I would point to two things that, that came to mind at that point. One was this industry, as you pointed out, has a natural barrier to entry. There are regulatory constraints. You need a certain minimum amount of capital to start up. And to me, that's not a bad thing. If anything, you, know, you, you kind of want to avoid a situation where the industry has a lot of, frankly, wannabe competitors. Right? Like people who just decide that you're going to, you know, you know what, I'm going to start an ad. I'm going to try to kind of like plot the space with ads. And so to some extent, any competitor that we dealt with, we knew were really, really serious. And they were probably here to stay because it, it meant that they would have gone through the regulatory process to get approved. It meant that they would have to have raised a certain amount of capital. So that was one. On the flip side, against kind of the big banks, I think there was a part of me that as I dug a little bit more into industry, I just wasn't confident that this was something that you could take a legacy bureaucratic organization, right, and turn it around. And I say that because some of the underlying fundamental infrastructure issues, right, are so deep and so endemic that it's really, really, really hard to change, right? Two things, right? Like, so one, we just talked about, I said that, you know, a lot of the industry operates on this commission structure, right? If you are a major bank and you want to rehaul, right, think about the thousands of people you have working and you want to rehaul the commission structure that people have been working on for a long time, right? That's going to be really tough, right? The unions, 
Not to mention the employee morale, that's going to be a tall order, even when it's really needed. The second thing that a lot of the larger banks have is that they have a lot of legacy technology. If you're a big bank, you're not going to just rip that out. When in fact, actually, that's what in some cases is really needed. You kind of need to build back from you know, square one to ask, you know, what is the value of this piece of data? Right? How do I build a data set that are integrated so that as the data sets get integrated, you can then allow for people to ask questions that would cross you know, the traditional industry lines. So I think those things gave me a lot more confidence that this was something that, you know, at least had legs, right? Like if you're going to make a leap to go do something, you know, like a startup at better was at that point, there's always going to be an element of this that is, it's not necessarily always going to make sense. One, you should never do it for financial reasons. People have said this a lot, but I would echo everything that people have said. It's a horrible financial decision for the most part, you know, from an expected value standpoint, right? It's a very bad expected value bet. But if you're thinking about it from a, I'm here to learn some skills. I want to learn how to grow a business, right? I want to do it. I want to sort of have more control. I want to make a small dent in the world, right? Like people talk a lot about like sort of disrupting. I'm like, no, no, no. Before you talk about disrupting whole industries, let's just like make a dent in the way things are being done. And if you are that kind of a person and you've already made the decision that you're going to join a startup, then it becomes a question of just, you know, what startup is going to have the greatest likelihood and the most legs to kind of be able to run. That was my, at least my decision tree. But as an individual, between your friends, your family, your partner, how did you convince them that, hey, I have this idea, I want to give up my career at BCG where I can make partner at the end of the day, you know, life will be good, but hey, I'm going to go join this startup and we're going to not disrupt at this point, but make a dent in uh, real estate today. How did that conversation go? So I was pretty fortunate. I think my partner and my family, they were generally pretty supportive. I've generally always been very excited about doing new crazy shit. <laughs> Frankly, I should not say shit on the podcast, but I'm the kind of guy that like when I went to India for better for like a year to set up an office there, right? You know, on the side, I was like, you know what? Like I found an orphanage and I said, why don't we, you know, start up a karate school for these kids? Wouldn't it be, you know, a crazy idea if we you know, help them become like karate black belts and offer that as an extracurricular that people could join. And then you, over the course of four or five years, right, it'd be great to get these kids to a black belt. It would be great for their self-confidence, you know, give them such a leg up in life, that kind of stuff. So I always had these like sort of crazy wild things. And I think my family and people who, who love me, I think are kind of a little bit used to that. And I think better was kind of a little bit of that. Better was, you know what? Sure. Am I giving up sort of this more stable path to go really try this thing on the Wild West. And I think so. they were supportive. One thing I will say, though, I fundamentally do generally think that when better is truly done, I think better will have disrupted the way homeownership happens in the US. From 2015, square one, till today, six years later, has the vision changed at all? I would say yes and no. No, because right from the get-go, as I said, I think there was always this idea that the way the homeownership experience has been for people is that it is so fragmented. So this idea of, you know, we are going to try to bridge this fragmentation has always been there from day one. And that was in the earliest prototypes of the company. What I think did change along the way was how we got there. Right. So I think initially we were like, well, you know, we're going to try to do this from the get go and try to integrate it. But then along the way, we sort of realized that you know, this is a really, really big problem as a whole to solve. You kind of need to solve it. You need to kind of break it up a little bit. 
And so we first went after the mortgage market. And then two or three years later, we said, you know what, now is the right time, launch real estate, launch insurance, right? And launch all more of these ancillary products, right? And by the way, you know, we think we might be able to do this in a B2B way. So do that for some of our B2B partners and build it out that way. And so in some ways, you know, that's why I said yes and no. So given that most startups actually fail, I think you've been very fortunate in the sense that you've had the experience of seeing the company grow, but not only grow, actually thrive along the way. Company, you know, surpassed unicorn status. There's rumors publicly of an IPO. You've worn many hats, you know, during your time at the company. What did your days look like at Square One? And how did that role eventually evolve over time? So I think of it in, there were kind of three phases, really to the time that I've had it better. In the earliest of days, I think of myself as like the general all-purpose guy. <laughs> if there was a joke award for the most number of roles at Better, I think I would actually get it. Because that was the point where we just had a lot more things to do than there were people. And so there was a point that I was setting up an office in India and spent some time there because that was strategically important for the company. Setting up operational functions, right? So at one point, we had issues with loan quality. And so I ran our loan quality team for a while. I ran our sales team for a while. And that was, you know, phase one, sort of jack of all trades, trying to do many, many different things. Phase two, which was right around sort of series B, early series C, was when the company really started to grow. It wasn't really at the scaling phase yet, but it was really growing in the sense that we had, you know, sort of had a much better handle on what what product the market was going to be receptive to. And at that phase, my role became a lot more strategy, business operations in the truest sense of the word, which meant, you know, helping the company figure out priorities, right? Align people around OKRs, build the OKR system, align people around OKRs, you know, make sure that a 150, 200 people company, right? We were kind of all rolling in the same direction. And then, you know, as we built out BizOps, it was a lot more about, you know, are there very tactical SWAT team type projects that we could deploy, you know, one or two teams towards. And then the last phase, which was really the last, let's call it one and a half to two years, that was the phase where I think I was operating a lot more like a de facto CEO for the company, where I was still helping to set up, you know, manage kind of our OKRs systems and set priorities. But then there were also responsibilities beyond the internal operations of the company, right? So I was dealing more with our investors and our board. I was helping with some of our ex- external executive hires, right? Working with Bashal to build out the, the executive team. And also at that point, I'd taken over operational responsibility for the sales and the ops teams on the mortgage side, as well as our real estate business. That last phase, which was probably closer to what you would expect of an executive in a you know Series C, Series D and beyond stage company. What is the single biggest fire drill that you faced in the various roles that you held early on in the company? And what is the biggest lesson that you took away from that? Single biggest fire drill. I don't think I'll talk about a fire drill because there were a lot, to be honest. There were a lot of fire drills. I think you cannot be at a... Let me talk about sort of a decision that was difficult for me. So very early on, you know, as, as I mentioned, one of the earliest things I did for better was to start our office, you know, get an office in India going. And it was strategically important for a variety of different reasons, partly because of cost, partly because it allowed us to be able to provide continuous support, right, 24-7 in a way that would be very difficult if you were just operating in, in a single geography. And initially, when I first went to India, there was already a very small skeleton team 
that someone else had built. But the team was kind of in a wrong location. It was in Jaipur, which is you know more of a tourist city. It wasn't really an industrial hub. Didn't have wasn't able to attract the right talent. And I think three or four months in, so I had built the office a little bit, but then three or four months in, when the office was about 20 people, I had to make the decision that, you know what, we're actually going to move. And this was when you decide that, you know, that decision was really tough because I knew these people, not just when the company is 20 people, you know, everybody, my name, right? In some cases, you also know their families, their kids, right? And you're trying to sort of weigh this decision between, can I try to make it work here? Is there any way I might be able to to really kind of attract talent to this part of India? And the answer to that question was no. And that was pretty clear. Then, you know, it became, okay, so if, if I'm not going to be able to do that and I need to set up somewhere else, right, and I'm going to have to shut down this office, what is the best way to do that in a way that I think is does right by people? And I think that philosophy, I think, from the get-go, that philosophy, I think, has served us very well and better, not just through that one decision, but through a lot of subsequent decisions, which is we always have to make the decision that is right for the business, hand to heart, what we think is the right decision for the business, and then you know figure out how to help people along the way. Right? I think sometimes businesses end up making the mistake of, in trying to make the decision you know, in the short term that helps their people, right? they end up kind of making decisions that are bad overall. So it's almost kind of like, you know, there's a not enlightened self-interest in that sense. And that learning of you always have to do what's right for the business. And then after that, once you figure that out, then figure out what is the right thing to do by your people. Right. And there are ways to do this, even in, the, in a decision as difficult as, you know, shutting down an office, there are ways to do this, that at the end of the day, when people leave, they will feel like they were treated fairly and well. Like some of those people that I had to let go, I actually still keep in touch with them, even to this day, right? And that's because I think we, you know, even when we had to shut down the office, we did right by them. And one or two of them eventually actually ended up making the move, coming to Gagaon with offices today and rejoining the company. Looking back, what's the most important hire that an early stage company should make? So I think that varies a lot between companies because every company is different. One thing I will say is at that stage of the company, every hire is important because you, you're so small, right? Everybody is probably doing three or four different jobs. You really cannot afford to have date weight in the company. Basically, you can't have somebody not pulling their weight. And that's something that, especially if you're an early stage founder or if you're very early at a company, it's very apparent. Once you realize that that's true, right, you kind of need to you know, again, make the hard choices, right? Like to the, what we just talked about, you have to make the right choice for the business. And then you figure out how to handle the personal relationships, right? In a way that is right by the person. So during the early stage, also something very, very important, culture. Better has been publicly recognized for absolutely excellent culture in the workplace. So when we speak about hiring right for the business, what was your lens of thinking of, hey, you know, speed is important. We need to grow and timing is important as well. Maybe there's a hire that fits very, very well for the business, but maybe not culturally aligned the best. How did you think through those things very early on? If I told you, hey, we always just hire for culture, I don't think that would be an accurate representation of what happened, right? But does that mean that culture wasn't important to us? That was also not true. We definitely turned away people who are frankly just jokes. So I think it, it will always come down to a bit of a balance. One thing I will say that has 
helped us tremendously is I care a lot about hiring right for culture right at the IC level, but I care even more, infinitely more about hiring right for culture when I'm hiring people who are managing other people. Because if you have somebody who is, you know, maybe culturally not the right fit, but they're in a, you know, IC individual contributor role, right? If the role is well-defined and, you know, the touch points will clearly define, there's probably still a way to manage that. And the impact to the team and coordination, that relative to the value the person adds, you can still kind of make a trade. What is infinitely harder is when that person is running a team. Cultural misfits when of managers, of directors, or people in leadership positions have a multiplied effect on the company, both when they are right and when they are wrong. And I think that that was something that as we scaled, we were very, very mindful of getting right. So Better grew, you know, even in the last like one and a half to two years, right? Better has grown, at least people-wise, I want to say, you know, five to seven times, right? Depending on where you start and end. And when you're hiring at that rate, the thing that I cared the most about fundamentally was, yes, I cared about, you know, the full 5,000, you know, people that we had, but I cared the most about the core group of leaders that we had, the managers, the frontline managers, because I knew that if we took care of them, the rest would automatically flow. If you took care of the, the leaders and the managers, you would empower them to then take care of their people. And that's the only way as a leader that you will manage to get that kind of leverage. If you try to manage down, you know, it'll be impossible. You won't actually be able, when you're growing that quickly, you won't really have the time to kind of go through the motions of, you know, like the way some older school companies do, right? Which is they're very deliberate about building culture. They're very deliberate about bringing people in and helping them acclimatize, adapt. You just don't have the time for that. And so the only way you can kind of grow that quickly is, Make sure that you try to get the hiring of the leaders right. If you get that right, more than half the battle won. Obviously, you're going to make some mistakes. Then again, you need a process to try to make sure that you know you weed out the folks who are not great culturally. But if you have enough of a threshold of really strong leaders, that will help you scale in a business that you know is sort of at least a little bit more people heavy. What is the state of the mortgage market today in January of 2021? And where do you see mortgages going forward? Rates are at historic lows, right? I mean, the Fed has given an indication that they're not raising rates till 2023, right? If you look at sort of, you know, analyst reports, there are still tens of millions of people who could benefit from refinancing, right? On the purchase side, very briefly, when COVID first hit in a big way back in March or April of last year, but then subsequently went on to have a really strong year. So I think the mortgage market, at least, in the near term, I think most people would say that that's, you know, it has some room to grow. More broadly, I think if I kind of expand out beyond just the next like 12 to 18 months, I think trying to make forecasts and predictions is always a bit of a false errand, but I'm going to take my stab at it, right? I think one, digital tech is obviously the way to go. There's a lot of legacy processes. So like e-closings, digital viewings, these are things that are probably here to stay. And I think the people who are going to succeed are the people who are best able to integrate these, you know, digital ways of doing business. Two, I would say integration is, you know, while not running a file of RESPA, right? So integration of different parts of the homeownership journey. I don't think Better is unique in trying to do that. I think we were probably one of the earlier ones to recognize the trend and to really build and rethink the process. But I suspect that many other people are already thinking in, in that way, right? And if you look at, you know, what Redfin, Zillow, 
Rocket are doing, I think they have definitely been trending in that direction as well. The one thing I would sort of mention is specific to, you know, sort of mortgages. Mortgages have become increasingly unaffordable, I think, for a lot of millennials who are coming into the market at this point looking to get a house, right? So something probably needs to be done there. There are many potential options, but I think that's probably a broader discussion. Five years later, when you look at some of the adjacencies in real estate technology today, what do you think, in broad terms, is the future of real estate technology and what excites you the most? So when I think about real estate technology, the thing that probably excites me the most is the fact that there's just a lot more data that is available. And this is not true just for the mortgage industry, but in the homeownership industry, it's true everywhere. But the explosion of data is helping consumers and customers make much better choices. It used to be that the data was kept in you know, some system that the real estate agent had in the back end or the loan officer had in the back end. A lot of this data today, right, like past sale data, valuation, title information, lien information on the property, a lot of this data is now increasingly being exposed to customers. And I think that that would only allow for the market to operate in a way that is a lot more efficient, right? As businesses start to exploit that data, I think that is very exciting. The other thing that I think will, will happen is... Some of these legacy structures that we've had in the industry that's operated for a really long time, I'm very curious to see how technology will reshape and refactor some of these roles. So, you know, at Better, I think we've really refactored how the loan officer works, right? That role, how that role works, right? That role is still increasingly really, really important parts of it, but there are some things that can be done by technology. So we refactored it. And I think today, right, that new role looks a lot better, I think, for not just, you know, the customer, right? It also looks better for the business. I think there are other roles like that, right? So the role that the real estate agent plays, right? The role that your title insurance person plays, like these roles, I think, have an opportunity to really go through the same kind of, you know, really hard questioning of like, what does the role actually do? What value do they add, right? Is it priced correctly? What should be done by humans? What should be done by by machines, right? I've heard some people kind of say, well, you know, all of this stuff is just going to get automated. I don't think that's true, particularly not for this transaction. I think real estate agents play an incredibly important role. I think, you know, somebody to guide you through the, the financing process, that's an incredibly important role. But these roles need to evolve as the technology evolves. So I'm very curious to see how technology will help to shape where these roles are going. Would you ever start another business again? Would I start something again? That is definitely yes. because. At some point, it's, as I said, it's just a little bit ingrained in you. Like, it's, it's like, <laughs> like before, before better, I could think to, you know, this karate project that I started. Before the karate project, I could think to some, you know, audible hearts that I, like, there are a bunch of things that I have just, every now and then when I find myself a bit more too much time, <laughs> I feel an itch to do something about it. So I think the, the, the answer to that is almost definitely yes. The reason I paused a little bit is because, I think the what I start and the nature of the company and the nature of the organization is something that you know I'm still trying to figure out. When you look back upon your experience at Better and you try to extract, say, playbooks or frameworks for how to properly operate a business, what three pieces of advice would you give to new entrepreneurs? I would say, one, invest to build a solid team. Don't settle too easily on people that you're bringing onto your early team. And if you find that they're not the right fit, move quickly to change. That is so, so important because your business is going to change and pivot a lot. And what will 
anchor you and anchor kind of the idea, right? The, the evolution of the idea is a very strong team. The second thing I would say is find not just product market fit, but find product market founder fit, which is something that I think Naval in one of his podcasts had mentioned. Because it's not just about, is there a problem here? It's sometimes also about, are you the right person to go solve this problem, right? Because for instance, you know, I could be in, you know, really passionate about putting a person on the moon. But if I'm going to start to do that, right, I'm starting from ground zero. And it's not to say that I couldn't invest the time to go do it, but the time it takes for me to go ramp up, right? And, you know, that's a question of, is that really the best use of time? Or is there something I already understand, right, that allows me to add outsized value on day one, right? What are the core insights do I know? that will allow me to add outsized value. So are you the right person to go solve this problem? And people should really think about that. And the last thing I would say is, once you figure out what you want to solve, right, figure out the things that you know that the market hasn't yet figured out yet, right? So like, for instance, with Better, the fundamental things that we, almost hypotheses that we had right from the get-go that we thought were true, we thought there was a better way to do the commission structure. We thought that a lot of the digitization of the business was happening on the front end and not enough on the back end, right? So these were like deep held hypotheses that we had that we then said, okay, this is the sizing of it, right? This is the 100 man hours really could be 20 hours. And that is, you know, X thousand dollars worth of value on every single loan. Those kind of insights, if you're able to get that, it will animate the thinking of the business. It would help to align people very early on, even when the vision is still a little bit fuzzy. It would help to add some sort of very clear stakes in the ground on this is what we think the vision of the future could look like and what's fundamentally, you know, needs to change, right? So that's three. Figure out the thing you know that the market hasn't figured out yet. Time to have some fun. I know that you enjoy many things besides building multi-billion dollar businesses. So on Saturday, Sean Lowe can be found doing what? Cooking at home. I make a very mean plate of Singaporean char kway teow, which is like, you know, fried rice noodles. And every now and then I would have people over the house to, you know, do a party and people can cook their own. So Sean, Sean Lowe's favorite pastime besides cooking? Uh, playing squash. Your favorite restaurant in New York? Sushi Ishikawa on the Upper East Side. They have an amazing omakase. I would highly, highly recommend it. The best hawker stand in Singapore? I would say the whole of the Old Airport Road Food Center is an amazing gem that any tourist in Singapore should not miss. And last one, if you had to allocate your entire portfolio to a single sector going forward, which one would it be? Uh, tech. That was Sean Lowe, co-founder and senior advisor at Better. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Raul. This was a lot of fun.